Well, good morning, everybody. Hello, everybody at home and everybody in the room. I can't tell you how awkward it is to be in the room while a video of yourself is played. So I realised just now how awkward it is. It's almost as awkward for the worship team as having recorded a video of yourself when in lockdown we did everything online and then you had to kind of lead yourself in worship. It's so weird. You're sort of, everything in you just wants to go, oh, shut up. Um, Anyway, hello, it's so nice to be here. Um, So today we're starting a new mini-series, it's been said already, we're going to be looking for the next four weeks at four foundational things that are important to us as a church, and they are key to understanding why we do the things that we do. So if you're new to OCC or you're just visiting us, then this month is actually a great one for understanding a bit more about what makes us tick. Uh, But it's also good for those who have been here for a long time, because it's always good, isn't it, to revisit uh, the stuff behind what we do. So the simplest way to express the foundation that we're going to look at today is the fact that God wants to have a close relationship with people. That's what we believe. And because of his initiative, we get to enjoy that. We get to enjoy a relationship with him. And there's a word that we use to kind of encompass all of that, and that is the word gospel. It's the gospel that we believe. It's good news that God wants to have a relationship with us. When you actually stop to think about the idea that there might be this kind of big cosmic being uh, that wants to have a relationship with human beings, the more you think about that, the weirder it becomes. It's so odd as an idea. It's a bit like if you got a message from the Queen of England on your mobile phone, and it just said, you know, Elizabeth R. Hey, Lois. Do you want to get together, play cribbage? You'd have a bunch of questions, wouldn't you? You'd probably be like, why me? Why are you messaging me? This is insane. You might be like, what's cribbage? I don't even know. That just sounded like the sort of thing that the Queen of England might like to play. She likes to ride horses. But the distance between God and us is surely bigger than the Queen of England and us, isn't it? That's how mind-boggling it is. But the Bible says it's God's desire to know us, and that's his delight. John 3.16 begins with this astonishing phrase, for God so loved the world. And in Genesis, it says that right at the start of everything, God created human beings in his image, like he imprinted something of himself onto us just like a father and a mother might pass on their genetics to their children, and God is described as a father. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this refrain, they will be my people and I will be their God. They will be my people and I will be their God. There's this ownership and belonging. And in Luke 12, verse 7, it says, even the very hairs on your head are numbered. Even the very hairs on your head are numbered. What? 
Do you think it's possible to measure the difference in size between a hair, a human hair, and God? No, it's just not possible. And there's just a part of me that goes, what? Why? We're so tiny. We're so fleeting. Why would he care? And it's not just about scale, is it, or measurable distance, because there's another distance too, and it's a much more profound distance. Why would God, who is supposed to be good, be interested in the kind of world that breeds the sort of evil and injustice that we see today? Why would he bother? And I've got to apologize because I'm going to sort of bring us down now, just for a bit, because I want to talk about the kind of things that go on in the world today. And if you want to know a bit more about the mess that the world is in, you look through the eyes of a young person. Um, An economist called Narina Hertz carried out some research, a significant research study a few years ago into Generation Z or Generation Z, which is the generation that has most recently come of age. Are there any Generation Zers? Okay, you're all pointing. (laughs) Um, A few. Um, So... Some are still teenagers, but quite a few are in early 20s. That's the generation we're talking about. And this economist interviewed 2,000 of these teenagers in order to kind of get to grips with what is their unique perspective on the world. This generation is coming of age in a time of economic decline. That's all they've known. Job insecurity, increasing inequality, post-truth and fake news. You can't believe anything anyone says. They feel that, the, according to the research, they feel that the world they inhabit is one of just constant struggle. It's unequal and it's harsh. They believe it's the colour of their skin, their sex and their parents' wealth that will determine their future and the data suggests that they are absolutely right about that. Narina Hertz calls them Generation K, after Katniss Everdeen, who is the tortured hero of the young adult dystopian Hunger Games novels, also films, which came out just about the time when these young people were becoming teenagers, that they identify most strongly with that woman, with Katniss Everdeen. Listen to this quote from one of the boys that she interviewed. He said this, For me, debt is a cage in which we are trapped. An inevitable heavy weight... An inevitable heavy weight that everyone in my generation is going to share. A teenager said that. When I was a teenager, I was worried about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) And boys, Buffy and boys. Just like Katniss, this generation doesn't trust authority figures, and why should they? Because they are desperately looking for someone authentic 
and kind and just, and they so rarely find it. And when they do find it, they are loyal and they fight hard for what they believe in. These are the findings of this study. I don't know if you've seen the films, but Katniss Everdeen doesn't do a lot of smiling. (laughs) Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Greed, inequality, lies, it's all out there. And the Bible says it's in here too. In fact, it's out there because it's in here. And the heart cry of younger and younger people isn't for fake perfectionism. It's for authenticity and truth. They don't want you to pretend to be someone you're not. They're sick of that. And that's because they're created in the image of God and they're emerging into a world that looks nothing like him. It's a world that's afraid of the truth. It's afraid to face up to the reality that we're all part of the problem. Not just that person or that leader or that political group. It's a world where to be exposed is to be put to shame. And so we hide it and we build walls and we judge others and we twist the truth. Anything to avoid being ashamed, anything to avoid losing. And all of this is why it can feel like this idea that there's a loving God who wants to have a relationship with us can feel like a fool's hope. Perhaps those of you who, Christ, who are Christians might identify with um, me. Sometimes I feel silly. I feel silly in the face of everything that's going on, saying it's possible to know our maker. It can feel like it's as distant a possibility as the stars in the sky. Why would he love us? But it's like this. Imagine there's like a close relationship between two people and one of them hurts the other. Perhaps it's a betrayal, but it's significant enough for there to be an argument and a falling out. If you've had that sort of experience before, you'll know there's nothing you can do but resolve it. You can't just have a cup of tea and pretend it's never happened. You can't just have a laugh together. It's like a physical thing between you. You've got to resolve it. You've got to talk it out. The friendship between God and humans is betrayed by sin. It is broken by sin. And that's why we struggle to come close. And this is where there is good news. This is where there is the gospel. That the only one who is powerful enough to do anything about this world happens to be the only one loving enough to do what it takes to save it. The only one powerful enough to do anything about this world happens to be the only one loving enough to do what it takes 
to save it. If you have Bibles, you might want to turn with me to a very famous passage in John chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. It's this same idea of being exposed, of exposing sin, of things coming into the light. So this is what we believe and this is what we stake all of our hope on, that God who is love and who numbers the very hairs on our heads was never going to leave us alone, was never going to allow sin to stay hidden under the surface. He wanted to give us the chance to be saved. He wanted us to have a way to bring our sin into the light, not so that we can be shamed, which is what we so often think will happen but so that it can be completely taken away. God was desperate to resolve the friendship. So he sent his son, Jesus, as a living, breathing human being, someone that could be seen and heard and touched and understood, a wise counsellor, a perfect example for us to follow, an authority figure who actually says what he means, who's trustworthy, an authority figure who stands for justice and tells the truth, a light that completely overwhelms the dark with his goodness and his purity. And Jesus was sent to take away our sin. He willingly gave himself up to be crucified on the cross. And when he did that, the Bible says he took all of the sins of humanity onto himself. And he endured the humiliation and the pain and the shame that we often fear we're going to experience. And he did that so that we wouldn't have to. And after three days 
of being dead. He was raised to life. Hallelujah. Overcoming death and sin in order to make a way for us to come to God. Without shame, without fear. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin himself, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So our identity is completely changed through no actions of our own. Because of Jesus and what he did on the cross, we might have once been sinners, but we are now called saints. And that's through nothing that we did other than just to put our trust in him. Because of that, we can regularly, and we do, we regularly bring our sin into the light to be forgiven. We call that repentance. And not only is our sin forgiven, but also the power is taken out of it. It no longer controls our lives. We're set free And crucially, our relationship with God is suddenly restored and made possible. The picture I had when I was preparing was of a a calm ocean with a shark just beneath the surface. And the calm surface of the water is the perfect veneer we so often work hard to maintain. But not being able to be truthful and authentic about who we really are is a bit like not acknowledging that the waters are shark infested. It can hurt us, it can hurt others, and it contributes to this wider culture of pretense where younger and younger people are burdened by it before they've even learned to ride a bike This isn't just personal. What is the legacy we want to leave for all of our future generations? So Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through him and what he did on the cross All generations get to enjoy God because he loves us and he loves us enough to have made a way for us to come to him free from the burden of sin, free from pretense, free to be authentically ourselves and loved by God. So this is the foundation for us at OCC. This is is the reason why we're here. This is the reason why we do all of the things that we do. We are so convinced that God loves us and went to great lengths to have a relationship with us that we make the most of that connection whenever we're gathered. That's why we spend half an hour more worshipping him when we gather together. We want to make the most of the fact that we get him. We are so connected with him that we join in with him as he continues his saving work in the world. And that's what we'll carry on looking at in the weeks to come. 
Just as I close, there's a couple of invitations. The first one is, if it's not been made clear already that this gift of forgiveness through Jesus is completely free, and absolutely no one is disqualified from it. So if you're listening and you would like that, in a moment we're going to provide a bit of space for reflection and that would just be a great time to start to talk to God. There's nothing in particular you have to say, no special words, but just start to bring stuff into the light. Start to say sorry and just he will forgive you. And if you want to know even more about it, then this is the place. This is who we are. If you want to know more, just ask. And the second invitation is to those who would already call themselves Christians, followers of Jesus. And it's an invitation to greater authenticity. It is more than possible for Christians to maintain that perfect veneer, am I right? (laughs) Yeah. And to judge others when they're not perfect. That is not the life that Jesus died in order for us to have. And if we want to have anything at all to offer this world, we need to get rid of that once and for all. We are not to be people of fake perfectionism. We're people of truth and freedom. We apologize properly when we've got something wrong. We forgive people fully when they've wronged us. We honor those who reveal their personal struggles in order that they might move on and away from them. And ultimately, we therefore get to take delight in our friendship with God who loves us and accepts us just as we are because of his amazing love. So we're going to have a time of reflection now. And to help us with that, I just want to invite Simon to come up on stage. This is Simon Thomas. And uh, he's, he's just arriving now. <laughs> Those of you who are at home. <laughs> there we go. You're now just right on the edge of the screen, you can see. Um, Simon has been part of OCC for 14 years. And, you know, he is a kind man. Um, I've so enjoyed his friendship, but, uh, but also he's served us so faithfully, and you may not have known that, but he's been on the stewarding team for 10 years. Woo-hoo! <laughs> 10 years. And this week, Simon told me, he didn't realize I was preaching, so he was probably a bit stitched up, but um, this week Simon told me he'd felt inspired to write a poem, and when I read it, I knew it was for us this morning. So Simon is going to read it to us and he's going to lead us in a time of reflection. Over to you. Thank you. Obligatory question, is my mic on? It sounds like it is. Um, Hi, friends. Hi, friends in the room, friends at home. Um, Yeah, as Lois said, this week I wrote a poem as a response to one of my favorite verses in the Bible, which is in Isaiah 41, about uh, God saying he will take us by the right hand. I just love the intimacy of that image. Um, and it's called Hands. As I read it, I would encourage you to be maybe conscious of your hands, like maybe close your eyes, hold them out, 
on your lap, uh, both at home um, and in the room. Maybe just think of that image of God um, holding your hand. As Lois says, when I finish reading, there'll be a few minutes where I'll stand here where we can just silently reflect on anything that God is saying, either from what um, Lois spoke about or what, what I'm reading. Um, and then I'll close this section in a prayer. Um, so yeah, hands. Isaiah forty-one thirteen, I am the Lord your God, it says, and I the Lord take hold of your right hand, and I the Lord say do not fear. I love this verse. I understand the comfort that it brings, the praise it calls for, and the peace that should appear. But how can hands that form the stars hold mine? How could hands that crafted day and night and dark and light and wrong and right hold hands as weak and sore and wrong as mine? Our Father loves a metaphor and loves to also make them true. Isaiah spoke of hands he hadn't seen, but we can speak of hands that were, the human hands of a Nazarene, of hands that Mary loved and knew in days of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But how can hands so full of life hold mine? How could hands that crafted land and sea and lion and flea and you and me hold hands as insignificant as mine? Those hands, both human and divine, grew stronger, labored, knew their worth, but chose the bounds of our humanity. They blessed and touched and calmed and prayed. The wonder of his ministry is that those humble hands on earth began to heal what they had also made. But how can hands that never sinned hold mine? How could hands that healed the ill, that made storms still, that did God's will, hold hands as disobedient as mine? Those fully human hands of Christ, those channels for God's miracles, had one last perfect miracle inside. When nails cut through flesh and skin, and by those hands he hung and died. Then rose up, love made visible, defeated death, and took away my sin. And that's how hands that save the world hold mine. How hands that bled and died came back to life now glorified, hold hands as weak and sore and wrong as mine. And power that made the world can yet condense itself enough to fit a palm in mine, as once Isaiah knew. The Lord can take my small weak hand in his, remembering his human hands and all that they had grace enough to do. And he can tell us not to be afraid. And we can hold the hand by which we're made.